Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends Brian Schmidt. Hello. Good evening. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Shop. <laughs> hey. I got to remember that now because it's always been a Guy's Woodshop, but I get it. You know, you're doing a lot more now. Uh, this podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank Mark Schmidt. Is that your is that your brother or something, Brian? No, that is my father. Hey, Dad. <laughs> no way. That's awesome. He's such a nice guy for, for, for uh, patronizing us. We appreciate that. Yeah. Joe James and Jack Francis for their pledge. If you'd nice. like to show your support, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. And please stick around towards the end of the show. We're going to briefly talk about what each of us have going on in our own shop. So let's get right into it. Brian, you've got the first question tonight. Yep. This question comes from Bojan, and he says, Hello, gents. Thank you all for spreading the knowledge and answering questions. I find myself building more cabinets lately out of plywood, and I'm edge banding them with solid lumber, going with a 5 16th inch banding on those shelves and carcasses. I cut the banding a little wider than the sheet goods, glue it on, and then trim it flush. I'm running into some issues during the trimming that I'm hoping you guys can chime in on. Oftentimes, when I'm trimming the banding, I get a little gouge here and there on the face veneer. It's not a huge deal on paint grade stuff, but when I'm using something like walnut, cherry, or white oak plywood, it becomes a problem. What tips do you have for trimming the edge banding cleanly and efficiently without damaging the veneer? Below are some things I've tried and some of my experience with these methods. I'm curious if you have other methods or if you have some tips to improve what I'm already doing. So in short form, a few of the things that he had included in his question as as far as methods he's tried so far. One is the router balanced on edge, which has been the worst method, he said. Using a router jig, similar to what Freddie at Period Craftsman has shared. It's a jig for flush trimming the edge banding. And that generally, he said, generally gives good results, but occasionally runs into issues at the start and end of the panel where the jig may want to tip a bit and bite into the face. I think you could probably learn more about that. The listeners at Period Craftsman's Instagram page Another option is the tall fence on the table saw, using it similar to an L fence with the sacrificial face set up above the blade and flush with the outer teeth, and then riding that panel along the fence vertically so that the edge banding rides under the fence and enters the blade and gets trimmed off. So this is so far giving the best results, especially when going to an extra tall fence just to give a little bit more stability and then that panel won't tip. Bowed panels can can present a bit of a problem and be unwieldy. And then the last option uh, that he said he's tried is the hand plane, using a block plane and carefully working it down. So the, the approach I take when I'm taking a plywood, typically it'll be just a plywood shelf. I don't usually, my, if I build a cabinet, I've got a face frame on it, so I'm not putting edge banding on the on the cabinet carcass itself but you know on any shelf sitting inside the cabinet that I that is a plywood shelf I'll do I'll do something similar around yeah quarter inch or five sixteenths inch on the banding similar to what he's describing I won't if I'm doing that usually it's it's going to be just finished natural it's not going to have it's not going to be painted inside the cabinet so what I'll do is I'll I'll oversize it 
a little bit on on the top and bottom. And I'll just be careful with the boards that I'm picking out in the grain direction and making sure, you know, if it's maple, that it's not running every which direction, the grain of the solid, solid quarter inch thick strip of banding that I'm going to put on there. Because as that grain direction goes up, down, and every which way, no matter what tool you're using, it's going to be it's going to be prone to want to tear out, which can bring some of that face veneer with it since there's some glue contact there. And the other thing I'll do uh, before turning it over to Guy is I like to leave just that little bit extra, like I said, and I'll start with a hand plane and get it close just with my little block plane. And once I'm close to flush, I'll I'll move over and sand it by hand at that point and, and bring it down that way. I don't like to do the random orbital sander on that because it can it can take away a little too much, a little too fast. But having just a, a sanding block in my hand allows me to adjust my angle of attack and really get at those spots that are that are still a little proud of the shelf itself. Guy, how would you approach trimming down edge banding, solid wood edge banding in such a way that it wouldn't end up gouging out or tearing out the veneer face of the plywood? Well, the 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 by the way, everything you said before, Brian, is very good advice. The way Bojan 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 is doing this is about the only way you can do it. If if I should say the, the way he's applying the edge banding, which is, you know, if it's quarter inch, five sixteenth, half inch, whatever, doesn't matter. He's trying to flush that even with the face of the plywood. And to do that, you know, your 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 all your setups have to be perfect. You you can't your your router can get tippy if you're doing it a certain way and I just found the easiest way to do it is not use solid wood edge banding and just use veneer tape edge banding and just take it off with a, you know, the, 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 the trimmers or a file or now I have an, a, a Festool router that I use to do it. I've done miles, hundreds of miles of edge banding. Uh, is is that the MFK? Is that correct? MFK seven hundred? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to be honest with you, anytime that we want to do at work, we we run into this all the time. When we want to do uh, like solid wood edge banding on something, mm-hmm. it's mo- normally face frames, you know, on the front. And we're taking, you know, the face frame is an inch and a half material, let's say inch and a half by three quarters. We're gluing it and, and actually pocket screwing it to the front. But when we trim it, we don't flush trim it with a flush trim bit. We use a V groove bit, which is, is what's that? You're talking about where the edge, the side edge of the face frame of the cabinet is meeting the side panel. Of yeah, the, of, of, the, of the plywood, yeah. Yep. So we don't flush that so where it's like perfectly flush. It is perfectly flush, but we don't try to get it that way. What, what, what we're doing with that, it's like a, almost like a veining bit. It's uh, just a straight bit on the bottom of it. It's got a little sharp corner that sticks out, and we take that and we trim it up. Um, hmm. That works really well, and plus – when you're when you're doing it with that, you've got the inch and a half of the yeah. width of the face frame. If 
shelves are going inside a cabinet with doors, Mm -hmm. they get just straight edge banded. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. they're going in a cabinet without doors, we put nosing on the, on the shelves, which is just like a face frame, except, you know, in the front of the shelf. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the how the, that's how the face the face of the shelf in that situation yeah. would be either an inch, yeah. inch yeah. and a quarter, inch and a half. Inch and a half. It's yeah. the same as the 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 face frame. Got it. So that just gives it a more even look. That's the way we do it. The way the way I do it in my shop, 99% of the times I use this regular edge banding. If I'm gonna yeah. put solid wood edge banding on something, mm-hmm. I actually use my router table. To to uh, in 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 which method uh, with the panel with, vertically or uh, with the panel, panel with the panel vertically yeah yeah the panel vertically and a and a and a extra fence on it yeah like an aux- a tall auxiliary fence yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and that's how that's how I typically do it if yeah. I'm doing solid edge banding mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. yeah the only you? thing I the only thing I can add to that is I, I do the exact same thing uh, typically I'm doing a tall auxiliary fence. And I, I get pretty uh, uh, good results with that. And I think that would help Bohan. It, it, I think it's Bohan or Bojan or Bojan, Bojan. Anyway, typically that's what I do. And I think that's going to help with your tipping issue is having that auxiliary fence. And if, if you don't, a, a really good set of those micro jig, uh, what is it? Dovetail clamps, I think they're called. Um, are really are a great way of attaching an auxiliary fence to your router table or your table saw. So Plus, if you, if you get, I'm sorry to interrupt, if you get like one of those compression bits too, you don't have to worry as much about the grain direction. Very good point. Yeah, and I actually, I was just going to say that I, I use a, a compression bit when I'm uh, using um, my auxiliary fence to to take off that that excess trim. Now, another way that, and it's an expensive way, but it used to exist and it no longer exists, but there's a way I'm going to talk about that you can do it without ha- buying this tool. Uh, there used to be a lipping planer that Lamello sold. I think it's called the Cantex. Um, uh, they, don't make, they don't make it anymore. They don't make it anymore um, nope. because I, I actually asked them about it and they said, yeah, we discontinued that years ago. But, but you, you, I asked them about that too. You mm-hmm. know what they told me? What's that? You buy it. They still carry all the parts. <laughs> buy all the parts buy all the parts and assemble it yourself yeah they told me the same thing and I, was like, I don't know if I, I, don't, I don't want to go through that because yeah. I imagine the individual parts are not cheap and, and no that's why I got the MFK 700 yeah yeah I, I'm thinking about it because I do a lot of that type of edge banding for when I'm doing veneer work that being said I made a round table that had uh, a solid edge banding around it and it was going to be difficult to do, put that on the router table or the table saw. So what I bought was the little lipper. I think, oh gosh, I can't even remember the company that, I think it's FastCap that sells it. It's just this uh, Delron handle that you can drill a hole into the face of a trim router. And I have a quarter inch uh, spiral bit that I can put into my trim router and basically, it's just a really stable way of holding your trim router horizontally to the workpiece. Does it work well? I saw it, that and it looked really hanky to me. It works well. 
in terms of the tool, I mean, it's nothing more than an aluminum handle with a piece of uh, Delron that's around. I mean, it's really, you could probably make something like this yourself. Like you can make a jig, you know, if you turn, you could probably turn a handle and, 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 and make a flat on that handle, right? But it does work because it's not so much the, the handle, which you do need, but more so the type of bit that you use, which really helped a lot with uh, the solid edge banding that I had because it was switching grain direction, I think midway through uh, the cut and it, it was able to give, give me a clean cut. Now, that being said, when I'm even ba balancing the router, not balancing, when I'm using the router table with a tall auxiliary, auxiliary fence, I'm still having to go back and lightly touch it up with uh, a sanding block to get it flush. Otherwise, I get a little bit of precession from the face veneer when I'm when I'm veneering the two sides. Mm. So I do have to give it just a couple of swipes of, with uh, a sand, sanding block and it, and it sort of takes care of that. Yeah. I guess I'm going to go back to my original answer, Bohan, Bojim, which is use regular edge banding. Yeah. And the best way to trim edge banding, I found without buying a lot of expensive tools, mm -hmm. is buying a, a file mm. that's made for it. They have a laminate edging files and practice using it. I can, before I got the MFK 700, I was doing, you know, cabinets all day, every day for weeks at a time using nothing but a hand file to get rid of the edge banding. Mm. And it works really, really well if you're, and you'll get, you'll get the hang of it really quickly. So I know Brian's seen me do that a bunch of times. I'll oh, yeah. check that out. All right. Uh, on to our next question. And that is to Guy. Oh, okay. I got to find it here. We got so many questions in from our, from our listeners since last time we asked. Yeah, and keep them coming. So we really yeah. appreciate it. Really yeah. keep them coming. All right. This is from Jeffrey. He says, hey, everyone. In the past, I've done a few small veneering projects, and I'm currently working on one which will require a few large panels, about 24 by 31. Previously, I used a train load of clamps and calls to press the veneer, but now I want to step up my game. So I ordered a vacuum press. Thanks to a few of Guy's videos, the process seems pretty straightforward, but I do have a question on the glue. For veneering, my only experience is with Type-Bond cold-pressed veneer glue with good results, but in some videos, I've seen some, focal, some folks recommend urea formaldehyde glue, especially for large panels. Do any of you have any experience with the stuff? Sounds a bit nasty, but if it's better for the application, I'll give it a shot. A shot. Thanks, Jeffrey. Jeffrey, I don't use anything but urea formaldehyde glue anymore. And it's been that way for probably four to five years. There's a lot of good reasons for it. The main reason is, is it's stiff. It mm -hmm. dries rigid. And there's, there's no creep at all from the glue drying afterwards or anything else. It's just, it's kind of like using epoxy. It has a much longer open time than regular, the, the cold press 
veneer glue. All that is is regular PVA glue. It's mm-hmm. tight bond. Um, it, if you're using something like uh, another advantage to it is that if you're using something like a, a, a crotch veneer or something like that, you don't want the cold press veneer touching that because it's got water in it and it'll expand it, it glues mm-hmm. it down, and then it shrinks and it'll crack. Mm-hmm. And I know it does this from experience. So uh, every time I've tried to use, I wouldn't say the last couple times I, I, I said, no, I'm, I, I don't feel like mixing this stuff up. I'm just going to go ahead and use cold press veneer, cold press veneer glue. I've regretted the decision. Really? Absolutely. Last time I ruined about $300 worth of Babinga veneer. It was a large panel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I I see what you're saying. It was was a tabletop. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I ruined it just because I didn't use the urea formaldehyde glue. Mm -hmm. For the folks out there that that don't know what urea formaldehyde glue is, um, that's like DAP weld wood Mm -hmm. that you get at the, the home store. It comes in a bucket. It's a powder and you mix it with water. The mm-hmm. thing is, is it, it's a, it's a known carcinogen. Yeah. It, unless you're around it every day and mixing up a lot of it without the use of a respirator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could be dangerous. However, once it's mixed in with water, it's not dangerous anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, just make sure that when you're mixing it up and measuring it, you use Respir- proper respiration. Yeah. So, yeah. I like using the urea formaldehyde glue. I highly recommend it. Yeah. So what do you think, Hui? I know you've used some of that before. Yeah. Before I got, so I was very much in the same position as, as, as this person. Um, I'm sorry. What is his name? Uh, Jeffrey. Jeffrey. Sorry uh, for forgetting Jeffrey. Uh, but I had the same concerns initially as well. And so I actually started using, uh, cold press veneer glue initially. But one of the things that I noticed, and I, I did account for it, but one of the major things that's a drawback is if you want to do bent lamination. Now, obviously, you, Jeffrey, you're not talking about bent lamination. You're talking about large panels. But for the same reasons, I believe Guy uses urea formaldehyde predominantly for his veneer work or may, many of the same reasons why I do. One of the great benefits is that when I'm doing a large panel, I tend to just need a little bit more time. And that's that's one of the great benefits of the urea formaldehyde glue as well is that it has a much longer open time than the PVA equivalent, um, the, the tight bond veneer glue or the cold press glue. So uh, I like that longer open time because especially if I've got a large panel and I've got two sides with a balance veneer and the face veneer that I've got to, you know, and I've got to jostle some some calls and some uh, some uh, vacuum press calls and whatnot, and I've got to finagle all that into a big bag. Yeah, I'm using urea formaldehyde glue all that day. It takes longer to get it in the bag than it does to spread yep. the glue on it. Yep, and so it just relieves a lot of stress for me when I'm doing larger panels, and because it also is extraordinarily stiff when it comes to bent lamination too, I'm going urea formaldehyde. And just like Guy says, you just got to be careful, um, you know, just use your head. I mean, you know, it's a known carcinogen, so just wear protective gear when you're mixing it. But again, once it's mixed, you know, wear 
wear, I guess, nitrile gloves or shop gloves or whatnot, just so it yeah. doesn't leach in your skin. But yeah, it once it's on, there's there's really no risk whatsoever. And once it's hardened, you know, it's not airborne, you're not ingesting it, so it it should be fine. Yeah. But experiment with it. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it does take a little bit of like knowing how much water to add, and you know, you kind of have to play with it. But yeah. Brian, I, I don't know. Have you done quite a bit of veneering? I have not done a whole lot of veneering, just very, very small panels for, you know, keepsake boxes and valet trays and things like that. So rather than provide answer input, I might actually ask a follow-up question to you guys on this. Where do you get your urea formaldehyde glue from? Is there a particular brand that you're loyal to or? Urea formaldehyde glue is urea formaldehyde glue. You can get it from Lowe's, Home Depot, or uh, just your local hardware store if they mm-hmm. still have it. Mm-hmm. It's it's getting harder to find. It is. Yep. Um, if not, I get it from uh, veneersupplies.com. They call it Better Bond or something like that. I can't remember what they call it. I, I think Better a, Bond is the cold press, isn't the? I don't know. I they've got remember. they've got a name for it. Yeah. Um, but they sell it at, at veneersupplies.com. And it's about the same price as it was in the home center. So it's mm-hmm. okay. not a big deal. Yeah, I bought the DAP Weld, Weldwood? Yeah. Weldwood. Yeah, I bought that. I bought like, a, I think I think it comes in a gallon is what you can buy. So yeah, I bought a gallon of it. You would That's think a gallon. Bucket. I mean, I used about half of it for a project. Yeah. But but it, again, it was large panels, right? So it it, mm-hmm. it does, yeah. You can use quite a bit of it, but but it was a. I think it was on sale for whatever reason. It might be because they were going to stop carrying it. So I bought the whole gallon. But uh, but yeah, you can get it from Lowe's or Home Depot. I'm not exactly sure if you still can. I th- definitely for sure you can order it online from Lowe's and Home Depot, and they'll yeah. either deliver or yeah. get it in the store. But uh, I don't know if they still carry it on the shelf. It might be something you have to still still order online. But it's it's not extraordinarily expensive. I think I got that gallon for I don't know 30, 40 bucks or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 not it's not outrageous. Um, mm-hmm. But if you you know another thing you can do, Jeffrey, if you don't want to do that, you can use epoxy. Yeah. Um, and it works basically the same way. It's a lot so, of epoxy. <laughs> A lot of epoxy, but yeah. it, you know, it's it's just like anything else. It, it spreads quite a ways. Yeah. So you don't use as much as you think you're going to. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I hope that answers your question, Jeffrey. Yeah. All right. So, uh, well, I think I have the next question. Since you two went, I'm the third one in line. So this is the second question from Carol. The other question is more about organization. When you're building a piece of furniture, like a dresser, do you follow a specific order, like cutting everything first, arming? I believe uh, what Carol's talking about is uh, pre-assembly or, or, or assembly, and then disarming or taking it apart and, and then getting finished on. So th- this is very much a, a very broad question. We can make an entire show about this, but, but you did talk about a dresser, and uh, I happen to be... Uh, I'm I'm about to start building a uh, a china hutch for a client, so uh, my strategy behind that is really to to mill the pieces out 
uh, as I need them and then pre-mill pieces out because it's going to be a long time before I can get to everything, right? So I don't want to mill everything to final thickness and, and, and width right up at the beginning. I'm, I'm just going to be milling everything initially. And then as I need things, I'll, I'll, I'll mill them down. But typically I'll work on the carcass and, uh, and the frame. So in other words, the dust frames and whatnot. So I'll build out the carcass and I'll dry fit those things together. And then I'll start working on the drawers and the face frames and whatnot, uh, the uh, drawer front frames and whatnot, and the doors. And then I'll slowly, you know, assemble those sub assemblies to make sure that they all fit. And really what I what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do that pre-assembly for and I'm working from from the outside in. Right. So the big carcass first and then I'm working in and as I need pieces and then as I'm as I'm doing the joinery on those sub assemblies, I'm milling those pieces together until I get to the you know final stage of it, which is pre-finishing, sanding everything and whatnot, uh, finishing everything that I can unassembled before I have to assemble things. But again, you know, Carol, this is a very broad question, and and really the the essence of where I'm going with this is that I'm working from the outside, so the big base assembly of everything that that huge sub assembly, and then working my way down into the smaller sub assemblies, and really uh, milling pieces as I need them, as opposed to milling everything together. Guy, you've done a lot of big projects, I know, a lot of like uh, consoles and whatnot. How do you, what's your ultimate strategy? Is it similar? Is, is there- I don't know if I want to go down the road of saying, you know, this is how I do it mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that really isn't a good answer. I don't think. Um, yeah. I think really what Carol's asking is, you know, is an, or it's like the order of operation. Mm. So every project to me is a little bit different and right. I'm, it's kind of like a game of chess. You always got to think two or three moves ahead. Mm. If I put this together now, how will it affect what I'm doing down the road? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to make sure. And I and I actually write it down as I think of stuff because I've, I'm an old fart. I forget stuff. <laughs> so typically when I'd go out in the morning and I knew I had, you know, I've got this stuff I got to get done today. I wrote down, you know, do this, do that, do this. Uh-huh. Well, wait a second. And writing it down helps you. It it, it helps you visualize it more too, because mm-hmm. then you can look at it and say, "Wait a second. If I do that, I can't do this. Okay, I need to move that up or move that back." And you just have to. You have to break everything down into sub assemblies, and one sub assembly can't interfere with another sub assembly when mm-hmm. you're trying to put it together. Yeah, I guess yeah. is the the tact I take when I look yeah. at how the order of operation when I assemble stuff. Right, right. Now, Brian, you do more cabinet work and uh, cabinetry and whatnot. Is is there is there any specific order of operation that you go through, or or is it very much similar? Like you're you're thinking two, three, four steps ahead and making sure that you're keeping reference edges and reference faces, uh, you know, un untattered before uh the joinery is done on those pieces yeah so i i i take this as kind of a design question and let's assume for purposes of his question that he's he's doing a custom design of something he's not following you know a set of plans and 
that's most of what I build. I, in fact, I don't know if I've ever built anything off of plans. It's just how my brain works and how I learn is by figuring it out. And I like to work backwards. So I just finished up at the at the end of the year. It was a built-in that went into what used to be a like a, a accordion door pantry space. It was around five feet wide. And I think my opening was around seven feet tall um, mm-hmm. in a friend's kitchen. And they wanted to take the doors out and put in... Uh, a wine fridge, a lower cabinet with a white oak countertop and this big white oak kind of V shape, or I'm not going to describe it very well. Uh, I called it a wine tree where it was kind mm-hmm. of a, a cat, a piece of cabinetry that went up above. It was all white oak and it mm-hmm. was angle. It was two sections left and right. Each, each shelf fixed in place and angled towards the center center trunk, if you will. Um, and as you put your wine bottles in, they'll gravity will pull them to the center of the cabinet. And then there were, I think three, three rows of that. And then I had a, a, a ceiling there that I had to build up to. So Mm -hmm. I had, I knew that I couldn't make it any bigger than, than the space allowed. So I said, all right, I know, I know what my countertop dimensions are. And there were some floating shelves, but you know, on the left side of that space too. Yeah. You know, for me, it was saying, all right, if I if I want my floating shelves to be two feet wide, then that means I've got, you know, three and a half feet of width to build this into. And from there, that means, you know, the cabinetry part of it needs to be a little under that because I want to leave a little room on on the side that's going to go up against the wall. And I'll and I'll make sure that the reveal on the face frame over there kind of covers that and gives me cushion because you know none of the walls are square so it was it was figuring out dimensions and then working backwards and i said okay if my cabinet will be you know 35 and a quarter inches wide then i need to make sure that the face frame if i want it flush on the left side is is the full 36 yeah Um, that'll leave me that cushion it's just breaking it down into into backwards pieces like that Mm -hmm. and once you've once you've reverse engineered what you want that finished product to look like all the way down to the pieces and parts. Then it, then it's just a matter for me of going in, in forward order and everything's already been thought through. And uh, of course, mistakes get made along the way. And you, you know, that's, it's not a mistake if, if you can fix it though. So yeah. 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 That's good. Good, good statement there. Reverse engineering. A lot of, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of figuring out how, the whole thing is going to get uh, go together is simply just reverse engineering what the uh, build process is going to be. You know, you can't, uh, w- what is it, uh, make the carcass and then you build the face frames to that carcass and not the other way around, right? Is that right? You know, I actually, because a lot of my things end up fitting, getting closed in on both sides if it's like mm-hmm. a little alcove off a fireplace or something. Mm-hmm. I start with the face frame and then I build the I build the carcass to fit that because you're not going to see the sides of the carcass, but yep. I, I need to make sure that face frame is perfectly fit in there. And um, that, yeah. that just helps me not make mistakes when I'm taking measurements once and then going and building an entire project in my basement and then yeah. taking it back, hoping that it's going to fit. <laughs> Yep. Um, yep. Well, great. With that, Brian, we're back to you, man. Yeah, you were right. We have a plethora of questions. So thank you to all of our listeners for, uh, for submitting all of that. My question is from Monty and Monty says, hello there. Been listening to the podcast for a couple of years now. Well, I'm sorry to see Sean step away for now. I'm happy he found someone willing to chip in. 
two things, and I think these questions were prompted by some of our what's on the bench talk from the previous episodes. Uh, it's actually a work, workbench related question. Mm-hmm. And it says lots of questions. What style are you planning? Rubo, Nicholson, Moravian, Shaker, Hybrid, something else. What size? What kind of wood are you thinking of using? Fancy with hardwoods or something simpler? A la Siemensen's Naked Woodworker Bench. Oh, goodness. I hope I read that right. Or Schwartz's Anarchist Workbench, both using two-by construction lumber. I think you'd mentioned still being up in the air about vice hardware. Are you leaning towards wood screws like Lake Erie Toolworks or metal like Benchcrafted? Maybe Hovarter, which has some quick release options. And then the really big question, dog holes. Round or square? Answer carefully. I'm one of those people and still... Continuing in the, in what Monty had written here, Monty says, I'm one of those people who has, a f- who has to fight the urge to build almost every bench design I see. Started <laughs> with the Nicholson, but kind of went off in a weird direction with it and didn't like how it turned out. Deconstructed it and repurposed most of the lumber for other projects. Couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to build next. So put some inexpensive import Yoast or Yast vices, the Y-O-S-T is how it's spelled. I don't know how to pronounce it. Hmm put those vices on a utility bench in the shop and have been living with that for now. Not ideal, but it's letting me work out a few ideas on a trial basis before I have to commit. Very much looking forward to hearing or seeing more about your bench project, Monty. So I, I feel the same way. I, I think I could just build workbenches. I don't know. There's something <laughs> something really, uh, I don't know, fun about that that idea is building something that you can then just continue continue mm-hmm. to use and, and get enjoyment out of. So the style that I'm planning, I, I, well, shoot, I just said that I, I've never built anything off of plans and here I am going to go backtrack that statement. I did buy plans uh, on, <laughs> uh, on the Wood Whisper website for the hybrid workbench yeah, I bought yeah, about yeah. a year ago. And while I'm not following, following them exactly, I recognize I have a lot, a lot to learn about how to build a workbench. And I think Mark did a really nice job of breaking down the steps and things to you know look out for as you're going about the leg assemblies and everything like that. So mm-hmm. I am it will be it will be modeled off of that, although not exactly. The the top is going to be built in two pieces, both about 10 inches wide and 54 to 56 inches long. I don't have a ton of space in my workshop. So I, so I can't, you know, make a big seven or eight foot long bench, but I also don't really need it for the types of things that I plan on using it for. It'll have uh, probably a two inch gap in the middle for 22 inches of total depth. And that'll be nice because it'll allow me to use clamps in the middle of that for additional work holding possibilities. I did buy hard maple, like I said in the last episode, by mistake. I wish I would have bought something different. In fact, I, I really wish I would have started with to buy construction lumber and not mm. not use such expensive material on the very first true woodworking bench that I've built. I've seen a lot built with two by construction material, and I'd much rather try a couple different times and you know learn through that than than jumping well, no, straight. To a nobody says thing. you have to use that hard maple for that either. Brian. Well, I've, it's I'm looking at it right now, and it's, yeah, he's kind of it's, it's definitely well, yeah. I already I already stalled out my saw stop once trying to rip this stuff. Um, so it's okay. The, the heat capacitator, whatever it's called worked uh-huh. as designed. So oh, that's good. as I, as I start transitioning over to the vice hardware, I, I'm not a, I'm not a wood screw vice type of person. I don't think mm-hmm. I'll go with a, a more modern 
simple, you know, metal vice. My dad actually for Christmas uh, gifted me the old vice that has been on his workbench. Now I'm 37 and I, gosh, it was, I was probably what, six or seven, maybe eight years old when mm-hmm. he and a friend of his built this workbench in our, in our old house's basement. And mm-hmm. I remember as a young kid, this, this vice and it's red and I don't even think you can read the brand on it anymore. And I've been mentioned to him for probably the last year or two. I said, Hey, I know you don't use your workbench that much anymore, but when you get rid of it, give me that. I, w- I really want the vice. So <laughs> under, the, under the Christmas tree a couple of weeks ago was nice. he, he went ahead and just took it off knowing that I was working on a bench. So I, I'm not sure if I'll install it on the front or, or on the end, but that's definitely uh, going to be one of them. Yeah. And then I'm going to go with, with round dog holes for no other reason than I, I think it'll be easier to uh, put those in place rather than have to try to create the square ones. And yeah. it seems like there are more, uh, commercially available accessories, work holding accessories for the round dog holes than square. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's been my my perception. So, yeah. I guess my question for um, I think I'll turn it over to either Guy or to We here is with your workbench. What what are what's maybe that that main feature that you really like about it in terms of deciding the style that that you ended up doing? What style do you have, and why did you choose it? I'll let Guy go. Mine isn't really any particular style. It's just a thick top and thick legs, and it's small enough to fit the space that I had for it. I'm not a big hand tool woodworker, so I don't. I don't obsess. I never did obsess about my workbench. Mm -hmm. There's just a couple times where I needed, you know, especially when chiseling, Mm -hmm. you have to have a surface that doesn't bounce around. So that's the main reason. I, and I do use my chisels quite quite often. Yeah. So that's really a, a a big thing for me. My my bench is fairly small. It's I think less than four feet long and maybe thirty inches wide, mm. but it weighs a good two hundred plus pounds. It's a beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, I have a a big cabinet I built that sits in the center of it. That's got a bunch of stuff in it and it just weighs it down. The thing I said, weighs, weighs a ton. So, um, it works really well for me. I've got a, just a standard Veritas quick release vice on the front. It's all I need. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would call my workbench anything special. I mean, it looks kind of like a Rubo workbench, but I mean, a Rubo workbench other than the split top, mine is a singular, 24 inches wide. Mine is a little bit longer than yours, Guy. I think mine is 46 inches long, somewhere around there. So somewhere around four feet. Uh, Doesn't take up a lot of space. Yeah, I mean, you just, I think the best thing to think about is what's what's your main mode of operation? I mean, are you kind of a hybrid woodworker? If you're a hybrid woodworker mainly, I really don't see the point in making you know, the, the, the Rubo workbench with the split top and whatnot. I think Guy really sort of hit it on the head in terms of what he does. He His workbench is nothing more than what he does, right? Like you can go down a very, very deep rabbit hole. Of yeah, main, mainly what my workbench does for me right now is it acts as a horizontal space to house crap that I'm not using. 
<laughs> there you go. There you go. So like you guy, I, I do a lot of chiseling. So most of what I use my workbench for is for the pounding aspect of it. But I do also, I've never machine cut. Well, I should rephrase that. I've The only other way I've cut dovetails has been on the table saw and, and cutting them by hand. Uh, so I thought it was imperative that I had a twin screw vise that I can put a carcass side in. So, you know, I've got that big twin screw vise. I have not really needed it that much. And I kind of regret having it because it does sag a little bit and it doesn't have the same clamping force as it did. Uh, thankfully, I bought it used for $70 on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or whatever from uh, another woodworker in town. So it was not that expensive, thankfully. But uh, I do kind of regret uh, outfitting it with that because it's a very wide vise, and it, while it holds panels perfectly fine, when it comes down to the smaller pieces, it just doesn't have that focus clamping pressure that I, I I would like to have. So maybe that's that's one thing that I would maybe have done differently is now I have a moxin vise, and that's perfect for doing you know dovetails for carcass sides. It, it, it's really the ideal tool for it. So yeah, if I I think I I kind of built this workbench all around this vice. And I was just so, so ecstatic about it. And I was like, eh, no, you know, 10 years down the road, I'm like, ah, eh, the vice isn't as good as it was, you know, when I first outfitted the bench with it. So um, maybe keep that in mind and just focus on what it is. What's your main mode of operation? You know, are you a hybrid woodworker? Are you really, you know, thinking about doing all, you know, hand cut dovetails all the time, all hand cut joinery? If not, then, you know, Try to focus on something that's really just going to be on uh, to meet your needs for, for your woodworking. The other question, round versus uh, square dog holes. I went with round dog holes. I don't know if there's a, is there a benefit to having square dog holes? I'm sure there is. Uh, I'm sure somebody out there is saying, oh, you got to have square dog holes because of this. Uh, and yeah. there's people are saying, oh, you got to have round dog holes because of this. Oh, who cares? Just get, yeah. whatever, whatever, get whatever you want. I went with round because it, for the same reason as Brian, there just seems to be a lot of accessories for round dog holes. They're, they're easier to drill. I, I have still have yet to drill a dog hole in my bench. And I've oh, had really? it for, for years. Yeah, I never had a reason to. Okay. Okay. What do you do for work holding? Uh, MFT table. Mm, there you go. <laughs> I'm not doing I'm not doing hand tool woodworking that often. Yeah, so it does it doesn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Yeah, if you've got to use your hand plane for a piece or whatever, a, do a stop on, you know, any dog hole for that matter is, is probably going to be plenty strong enough. Right? Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right. Uh, well, hope that helps. Uh, Guy, you've got the your second question, man. All right. This comes from Will at Sky Blue Custom. And Will says, hey, gentlemen, welcome, Brian. I have a commission for a big walnut slab table that will live in a nook with windows on three sides. Lots of UV exposure. What do you recommend for finishing? I seem to recall Guy mentioning some walnut finishes that don't hold up well to UV exposure. I'm probably, out of, uh, probably a month out from delivery, so hopefully this makes it to the show before that. Sincerely, your accidental woodworking fabricator, Will. So I don't know if I ever said that stuff doesn't hold up well to the UV exposure. Some finishes do, and we're going to get to that in a second. Really what I was saying is walnut 
with UV exposure turns orange. Yep. The walnut turns orange, not the finish. Hmm. The wood itself. Walnut gets lighter with UV exposure. It's the exact opposite of something like cherry, which gets hmm. darker. Right. So that's why I typically, something if I wanted to keep that color, I usually use a dye. Yeah. A very light mixture of, of, of dye, and I, I dye it. And it helps retain the, the darker color and helps it from turning less orange. But as far as a finish goes, if you're going to get something that's using a lot of light, I'd, I'd really recommend uh, probably an oil-based, non-film, non-heavy film finish. A good wiping varnish would probably be a good way to go and not 20 coats of it, just enough so it, you, you get a, a decent, maybe three or four good coats on it and go that route. That would be me. Uh, what, what do you think, Brian? What would you be doing? I, I was going to say the same thing with, with dyeing it just to, just to try to lock some of that color in or, or, you know, Cause it will, it will turn orange. Our conference room table at work gets afternoon sun coming through the windows and yeah. it is, I mean, it, it looks like a Clemson tiger paw. It's, it's that orange go tigers. It, yeah. That's, you had to get that in there, didn't you? Well, I, sadly on the heels of the Tennessee game, but yeah. it's okay. Always, always love my tigers. So um, that was, that was really the only thing I was going to add. Um, as far as finishing that to try to, to try to prevent the color change from happening or at least slow it down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is, there are a lot a, of UV protective finishes out there. Every time I've worked with Walnut, it's always been just like an armor seal or a wiping varnish. And uh, in the same, uh, same respect as, as Brian and Guy, I've dyed my Walnut to ensure that it maintains that color. Uh, just like just like you guys have said, I've used wiping varnishes and normal polyurethane on interior products of walnut, and I've not seen any degradation of the finish from the UV light that's been in my dining room for I don't know how many years now, 10 years, and is actually now at my uh, brother-in-law's place and you know right next to windows. And that finish is not cracked or there hasn't been any discoloration uh, due to the UV light that's coming in from it. And I think that has to do with the fact that it's been dyed more so than uh, the finish not being a UV protective finish. But no, I understand. It's a, UV light is UV light, whether it's coming through a window or, or outside. I have um, a, uh, well, not too many years ago, I built a, a secretary on my channel that had tambor, like a tambor doors that opened in the front. Mm-hmm. Yep, and that was just a shellac finish mm-hmm. on that, and that sits by my back door, and it gets uh, all the afternoon sunlight. That door faces due west, mm-hmm. and it gets all the afternoon sun. sun all the afternoon sun. It is bright orange. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. definitely the the Clemson orange that. Brian was talking about before. Go Tigers. <laughs> Go Tigers. Yeah. From, from the, the walnut. Yeah. But yeah. The, the shellac has not failed on it. It's fine. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. The, the other thing we'll mention that this is a commission and it, it might not be a bad idea. Will to, to start doing some expectation setting with the customer as well as maybe highlighting some of those extra steps that you're going to take to say, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, Walnut over time with UV exposure does have a tendency to change color. So now you're setting the expectation in case it does happen. Here are some additional steps I'm going to take to mitigate the risk of that happening or to at least slow it down. Um, and really, really highlight some, some of the value you're adding to the project, uh, for your customer. Um, I think you're going to do it anyway, so you might as well, uh, take credit for it. And as well as, um, set some expectations so they don't, they don't call in a year and say, Hey, the color's changed. That's definitely a value add. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope that helps you out a little bit. Well, yep. And so now it is, I believe I've got the final question. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I do. Yes. Okay. This question is from Brian Russell. I love your podcast. Try hard to fully answer questions asked and not provide flippant answers like other shows do. Well, I can't imagine us doing it any other way because it's, well, listener supported. It's from you guys. That's what makes this great, this show great. Well, we really appreciate it. Now on to my question. I have been wanting to upgrade my sanding game. I want to reduce the vibration, have it stop quickly and produce a great result. I would love to hear your thoughts on what you look for in sanders such as size, five or six inch, pad type, soft through hard, uh, brands you have used and liked, and what brands of paper you buy. Uh, I'm starting to realize no one sander does it all anymore. So do you have a progression of sander purchases you would make for a simple furniture maker? Uh, thanks. Thank you for anything you provide. Uh, yeah, so there's a really broad question here, but uh, you know, I've got a couple of sanders and I've tried a few. Uh, I've tried a Merca, I've tried an Indasa, uh, and I've tried a Festool sander. And I still go back to the Festool sander that I bought seven years ago, and I bought it used, and it's still chugging along. So this is the Festool sander. I think it's a three millimeter stroke length. I can't remember what the stroke length, but they're there are two sizes. I think it's three and five. Is that right, guy? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Three and five. I've got the smaller one because I typically use my sander, you know, after my material's gone through a planer. Not that it's perfect or, or ready for finish after the planer, but I just sort of feel like it's closer to where I where I'd like it to be coming off of my planer. And that the three millimeter stroke length on the sander that I use, which is a five five inch sander, the old 125 ETS from Festool. And I love that thing. Uh, before that, I had a Craftsman uh, random orbit sander. And I think really, my opinion, getting a, a good five inch uh, random orbit sander is 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 really where, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I think I use that pretty much for all of my sanding, other than hand sanding. There are a number of other small sanders that you can get, you know, they're delta corner sanders, and there are you know, rectangular sanders. And I kind of just stick with the round one. Um, I don't have all the other fancy ones. I do have a delta sander, a corner sander. I rarely use it. Um, I think it would be very beneficial if you were making frame and panel doors and, and, and wanted to sand in between, uh, finishes if, if you were using uh, paint or whatnot, but I, I, I've stuck with the five inch in terms of the speed at which it, it, it stops it stops fast enough for me. Uh, I believe the brushless sanders 
stop faster. Is that correct? I, like, I, I have no know, idea. I don't know the answer I've to that. I've never timed I've, it. That's what I've heard. Um, I'm sorry. Sorry, guy. What'd you say? I just, I've never timed it. I don't know. Yeah. yeah we yeah. have the brushless Sanders festivals, ones at work. I don't like them. Oh, really? Yeah. I, th- I find them incredibly uncomfortable to hold. Oh, oh the, 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 um, yeah, because the ergonomics of them is slightly different from the uh, older. It's yeah. not slightly different. It's a different different sander. It's okay. got a big long handle on it, and I just hmm. don't like the ergonomics of it. I, I have a uh, a six inch, an old ETS six inch that I found in a in a bin somewhere, and I oh. keep it under my bench. Nice. Um, the let's see here, soft through hard. I keep whatever's on there and i think that's what medium hardness i can't remember but they're hard pads yeah whatever whatever comes on that sander is what i kept keep on it and majority of what i'm sanding is flat anything that sort of has any sculpture sculpting to it or roundness to it uh, i i really like that uh, rotex 90 sander and i use a soft interface pad but you can use a soft interface pad on uh any six inch or uh five inch random orbit sander that they're they're soft interface pads that are available and those soft interface pads are really good for curved work brian what do you what kind of sander are you using and are you happy with it i i do not have a fancy sander i have a bosch five inch um that i got at lowe's probably three years ago and mm-hmm. it's it i'm actually on my second one the first one died within a year and i swapped it out and got a oh, new wow. one <laughs> well, maybe i think it was an anomaly the the replacement has has been going strong for a while now and it it's fine for for light use um i think let's see so brian russell who asked the question said progression of sander purchases you would make for a simple furniture maker so if you're not doing this day in and day out and you're not going to be sanding for hours on end you know, a sander like that Bosch has, has been fine. It's worked, it's worked well for me. I think the dust collection on it has actually been pretty good. I've got the Rockler, the Rockler hose and the, you know, fitting that hooks up to the sander and then to my shop back and my dust deputy. And I'm able to, to get pretty good dust collection with that when I've got all that running together. Now, if I've got a sand for an hour and a half or two hours, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll stop and then I'll, I'll be like, why is my arm tingling? And, <laughs> and that's what, and that's when I, that's when I wish I had, you know, one of the higher end several hundred dollar sanders, but this one right now, I think you can get it for $59 on Amazon yeah. and yeah. and it's, it's serviceable. It, it's not great, but it's variable speed. Mm-hmm. And like I said, dust collection is, is pretty good on it. And I've had to replace the pad once and, and that was a fairly inexpensive uh, thing to switch out. So for for the value sander category, I find I find the Bosch. Uh, I think it's the ROS twenty VSC is is the model. Now for sandpaper, I I really like the three M Cubitron. Yeah. Um, okay. That I I've used a couple different kinds of sandpaper, and this is one that I found holds holds up the best over time. And I, I get mine from Tay Tools, and usually I'll buy a big, bigger package of the 120 and 180 grit, and then a lot of times I'll have the sample packs of the of the finer grits mm. available, where you can get a few different grits and and 
maybe three or four discs of each because nobody likes spending money on sandpaper and I'm, I'm no exception. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the sandpaper that, that I prefer. Uh, Guy, what do you, what, what's your preference in sandpaper? I, I, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to be kind of a snob on this, I guess. I would definitely recommend going with the festival sander, just a small, like the 125, like we was talking about. That's what I have at home. Yeah. There's an ETS 125. Mm-hmm. And I think you can get those fairly cheap now. I have no idea what they cost. I, mine, I bought mine a long, long time ago. Yeah. Mainly the thing I really like about that is it doesn't make your arm tingle like Brian's yeah. does. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one. Number two is um, the dust collection on it is just unbelievable. It, it's really, really good. Festival sanders really shine as far as their dust collection goes. In regards to sandpaper, I buy Festool sandpaper. Yeah. I yeah. like it. It, it, it. it lasts forever. It cuts for a very long time. It's not cheap by any means, but then again, nothing quality ever is cheap. So yeah. I just bite the bullet and every year or so I buy, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of sandpaper and I have it in stock. And when it starts to go down, I just buy more. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, get into what each of us have going on in our shops. Brian, since I started with you on questions, uh, let's start with you on that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I haven't made a whole lot more progress in the span of an hour on Christmas Day. I not only <laughs> fried my, my Bosch plunge router, I also stalled out my saw stop trying to rip through some of these boards to to, for the top. So I, I hey, hung it up. At least you didn't die doing it. <laughs> I didn't die doing it. That's true. That's true. I did not, I did not fall on the saw blade and, uh, meet and, and die. Um, thankfully it was, it was just, a, an issue with the switch and the router and my father-in-law, uh, helped me get that fixed over break. And then the, the saw is back up and running after I reset the circuit on it. So, not a lot of progress on the bench. We were out of town for a week and went to Great Wolf Lodge with the kids uh, as well. So hoping to get back into it in the next week or two. What about you? Uh, well, what do I have? Um, I had a whole house get sick over Christmas. Wow. So pretty much every single person in our house got sick consecutively. So starting with my know. son, he'd gotten croup and then I got something and my daughter got something and now my wife has something and she's on the hopefully on the back end of it. Uh, so we actually did not. I mean, I think we saw family for one day, but we just did not want to get everybody sick because there are a whole bunch of babies and whatnot in our family right now. So, so yeah. That being said, I did happen to have a friend over to my shop and we started working on a coffee table for him. He, Andrew, a coworker of mine, uh, also listens to the podcast and I had him over and he's, he's been wanting to learn more about woodworking and he's starting to outfit his shop, but he doesn't have a joiner and planer. So really what we did is we milled up all the material for his, uh, for his coffee table and it's in clamps right now. So we actually got quite a bit done and it's a pretty simple table. I mean, it's, you know, four legs an apron and, and a top. So he's, yeah, he's pretty, he's pretty green and, uh, so far, he's loving it, but uh, I've had him over twice, and we got quite a bit done in, in two days. So, Guy, what do you got going on, man? Um, 
Nothing really. I, I actually put out a video on my YouTube channel of a, a laser engraver that I got. And uh, things pretty neat. Uh, I actually have a job coming up that I am going to be doing with it. Oh yeah, or can you? Uh, yeah, I've, yeah, I've got, I've got, I've got some stools that need to be engraved. Very cool. Very so, cool. so uh, is that is that a new tool for you guy that laser yeah. engraver? Yeah. And I'm uh, sorry, I, you'll have to excuse me, guy. I hadn't watched the video yet, but is that on a laser engraver attached to your CNC? No, is it a, it's a laser engraver, laser engraver, okay. but it's not a. a $5,000 CO2 laser machine. It's a cheap $500 one. Okay. Um, but it works for what I, for what I needed for, it works fine. It's nothing fancy. Okay. So I've, I've got that going on. I'm still working on the, 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 these stairs in my house. I'm putting new dual posts in and stair rails and that kind of stuff. So, that's about it. Well, all right. Um, great to hear that guy. And I think that wraps up the show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. And we really are thankful for all the questions that you sent in, but please continue to send them in. And if you'd like to uh, send those questions in, you can contact us through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com, or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And please make sure you include your name so that we know who to thank for the question. Uh, we would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, just search for Guy's Woodshop on any social media and it should pop up. And Brian, where can we reach you? By mid-February, I'm going to have you guys hold me to it. By mid-February, I will have established myself on social media. That is my goal. One, uh, of, one, of, the, one of the listeners put in here as part of his question that you should go on Sean's site, simplecove.com, and oh, is, put some pictures is, on there. That is true. I think I think that might have been Monty. I had it was it. Monty. Yeah. Yep. Yes. I, and, and I think I will do that. Um, but, it, that but it is, yeah, have, it's nice. Have you to, been to that website? Yeah, I actually do have it. I, I registered for an account there a while okay. back. I've just never posted anything on it's it. It's a really good website. Oh, yeah. I, love, I go there. I go there for inspiration all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, all right. Well, that uh, that does it for this show. Uh, we'll see you in a couple. All right. See you. Have a good one, guys. Take care. Bye.